Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Glossine could be the first colored product in the 10 cents or less. Which reminds me, Ransom, I want to bring Mr. Moreland a special kit uh, with the hot combs and glossine wrapped up nice so he can see how pretty they're going to look on the shelf. We opened five new salons. You're talking about expanding. We're going to be working all the time. That's what successful businesses do. They grow. Damn, Sarah, how big you want to be? Biggest Carnegie, Ford, and Rockefeller put together. That's Octavia Spencer playing Madam C.J. Walker in the Netflix series Self Made. Walker was the first female self-made millionaire in America. She was an African-American entrepreneur who made a fortune with her own line of hair care products catering to Black women. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Black and brown communities have faced hair discrimination for centuries, and it still exists today. Connecticut is one of nine states to pass the Crown Act. It makes discrimination against hair illegal in workplaces and public schools. From the use of hair as a status symbol in ancient Western Africa to the embrace of the Afro during the Black Power movement of the 70s, Black hair has had a profound impact on global culture. In a new exhibition opening this fall at Kent State University, Black hair is finally getting the respect it deserves. Textures, the history and art of Black hair, is an ambitious new show on the rich legacy and beauty of Black hair. Tamika Ellington is Associate Professor of Design and Interim Assistant Dean for the College of the Arts at Kent State. Joseph Underwood is Assistant Professor of Art History, also at Kent State. They are the co-creators of Textures. Tamika, Joseph, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for having us. Tamika, I want to start with you because the history and the culture of Black hair have become a part of a broader public conversation, especially over the last year. But you've been working on this exhibition and this book for the better part of four years. Talk to us about what inspired you to explore this world of Black hair and create this exhibit. So working with Black hair in regards to my research, um, I've been doing that now for probably the past two decades. Um, As a master's student, I started off my research wanting to know more about Black beauty, um, specifically about Black hair, you know, because of, you know, me being a Black woman, uh, Black, you know, woman with brown skin and kinky hair and, you know, society's perceptions of what beauty is. And oftentimes, you know, women like us don't particularly fit within that paradigm. And so, you know, I've had other, you know, situations in my life, you know, traumas in my life that led me to wanting to, to have a better understanding of why society had such a disdain for Black people and Black hair. And I think in that way, Joseph, this becomes more than just a show about hair, 
but it is firmly about hair as the symbol of power, the symbol of pride, and this connection for communities that, as Tamika said, not only get overlooked, but are often rejected. Given that context, you have over 250 artifacts from across the continent of Africa, from the Americas, and from the Caribbean, and you're featuring the work of over 50 different artists. How do you set the parameters for what you are going to include to tell such a rich and nuanced story of hair? It was a really interesting collaboration because of the way that Tamika and I approach the topic, both personally from our backgrounds, but also from our research interests. We compiled a lot of art objects, kind of fine art, which you would find in a museum. We have material culture, we have historical artifacts, we have, you know, things from pop culture and Egyptian tombs. It's just, it's, like you said, it's really broad reaching. So one way that we wanted to think about it was that there was not a single story. There was not one overarching narrative. There are several lenses by which you could approach the topic. So we were able to look at the objects we selected and condense it into the three themes of community and memory, which has this kind of element of nostalgia and the way that your hair is, is, is crafted and, and displayed and enjoyed as part of a community. It's not a singular individual act. And then the second lens was hair politics, which is, of course, um, you know, we, we can think of times in, uh, and, and spaces in Africa when wearing a certain hair denoted royalty or, or a certain status. We can think of it in terms of, um, of, when, of when hair became symbols of cultural resistance, like the Afro. And then we can think of it as you're just a child going to school and then you end up in the newspapers as a political thing, even though you were just trying to exist, but then you went to school and you had to have your locks cut off before the wrestling match. <laughs> the third category was black joy, which is just to say there's an incredible artistic, creative, um, expressive element to hair. And the kind of fun overlap between these categories is that even black joy can be seen as a kind of political stance. <laughs> um, the, the politics of existing and resisting. But as Tamika writes so eloquently in the catalog, you know, Black Joy is just about being unapologetically and joyfully Black. Joseph, let's talk about that appreciation because as I mentioned, this is a very impressive collection that involved lots of tough choices, I imagine, for you of how do we tell this story together. And I wanted to ask, were there particular showpieces that resonated with you or that you feel really connected you to the story that you two are telling? Um, I can share about a, a piece by Mary Sabande, who was a South African artist. Um, it's gonna be one of the largest pieces in the exhibition. It's a life-size black-skinned mannequin. And she is reflecting on her position as a woman in South African society. Now, traditionally, if you're a domestic worker, you wear a blue apron, a blue uniform. But Mary Sabande, on this figure, she transforms that into this 16 foot diameter ball gown that takes up the entire center of the gallery. And so she elevates and heroicizes that woman's, um, that woman's role in society 
But in this particular instance, because Mary Sabanda uses that figure a lot in her work, but in this piece we have for the show, she's actually using artificial hair um, pieces of weave to weave together an image of Madam C.J. Walker hanging on the wall. So you have these kind of two women that come from a particular part of society who have had economic uplift through their own ingenuity. And you've got this really interesting South Africa, North American dialogue, which resonates with, for, you know, I'm a historian, right? So I'm thinking about the relationship between anti-apartheid activists and what they were inspired from, from the civil rights movement. So it just, it pulls together a lot of the kind of histories, how we're going across time periods. We're going across geographic regions to try to pull together different threads. But I've learned so much from Tamika and the pieces that inspired her and things that came from, you know, I'm thinking of that Annie Lee print. Yeah, yeah. Um, adding, and I'm sure probably seen a piece from Annie Lee, you know, growing up as a little girl in beauty shops and, you know, going in and getting your hair done. I'm telling you, like, as soon as most Black women see one of these prints, they automatically, you know, go like reflect back to their childhood. Um, Annie Lee um, is an artist that has done a variety of different types of um, prints um, that um, are, are, are a, a great reflection of Black um, culture and heritage. Um, one of the ones that was important for us to show in the, in the exhibition was called All That Glitters. And it's two or three ladies sitting in beauty salon chairs, getting their hair done. And you can, you can see like just that whole atmosphere, you know, like tools are all over the place, hairs all over the place. And, you know, the women are chatting it up. And like I said, a direct reflection of what it was like for black women, um, you know, in beauty salons. Um, another piece for me that's been really important is a piece by uh, Masa Zandras. Um, it's called uh, Femme Totem Blue. Uh, that particular piece speaks a lot to me because when you look at the piece, it's, it's a beautiful print, uh, like a block print on a wooden, um, uh, um, a blue background that has this kind of like wooden grain to it. Um, the hairstyle that was done up on the, on the image is something that looks very similar to a totem pole. And of course, when we think about totem poles, we think about spirituality. And for um, Masa to, you know, um, have the analogy of hair being as a, a totem is a, is a real reflection that, you know, not only is black hair about beauty and the culture, but it's also about an, a, a super, you know, tight spiritual connection that Black people have with their creator. And so whenever I think about that piece, it just reminds me of how close Black people are to the creator um, and how important our hair is um, to, to just our spirituality and who we are as Black people. You know, I'm smiling as I listen to you talk about that Annie Lee print because I, I know it. I grew up seeing that, as you said, but that connection to that experience and the connection to a spiritual tradition also references the intergenerational connections 
of hair, that sort of rite of passage of going to a hair salon for, for women and girls or going to a barbershop for young men and boys and feeling connected to something that is larger than you and wanting to be in that moment. And we're seeing now as, you know, natural hair has become the norm, so to speak, for more and more people. It also means that it's becoming a very economically thriving part of the sector. And that I think Joseph raises this question of not just ownership, but also who gets to tell these stories and profit from these stories. How do we reconcile the the notion of who consumers are and, and who has the need for these kinds of products and these connections to hair and affirmation versus who is owning these companies and these corporations and setting the terms for those kinds of expressions? For me, and again, I've got this historic historian lens, it's an old story. It's just who's moving goods in and out of Africa, who is controlling supplies of demand. And we're talking about goods. We're talking about minerals. We're also talking about people. And so all of these contemporary iterations of who gets to control the narrative, who gets to control the um, economic impulses, they all have historical precedents. And there are artists who've reflected on this for every single of the last, you know, 200 years thinking through these issues. So we're really indebted to some of the artists um, who are using hair as a material and through their work. I'm thinking of Sarah Dois from our show, who's a designer um, and is using um, braids and, and, um, and, and different hair pieces to construct garments. We have um, Lebohong Motaung from South Africa, who is on both sides of this equation. They're both a hairdresser, braider, but then an artist who is creating these sculptures on the wall made of hair that actually have an element that comes off the wall and a viewer could put it on their own head. So you have the connection between your head and the head on the wall. So these dynamics require so many different approaches for unpacking and I'm really grateful that we were able to get such a breadth of perspectives. Yeah, the the whole idea of who owns the, the rights or who who's profiting, um, that's been a, a, an issue that's been going on for so long now, you know, and it and it ebbs and flows in the black community. Sometimes um, in history, black people have the majority control. But then in other times, dominant societies, white people have dominant control. Uh, right now in our history, there's kind of like a little bit of both. Um, there was at one point in um, the early, um, I think it was like the early 1980s, where um, Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson were you know, getting together um, these political movements to ban against um, these white um, owners who were basically trying to take over the black hair, you know, economy away from black people. Um, and so right now, you know, because of the natural hair movement that's been going on, there are more um, companies out there now that are owned by black people catering to black people. Um, however, there are still others uh, that um, are trying to also get a piece of that, um, you know, those finances that come with, you know, the, the, the market, because there is a major market, there's a lot of money, you know, to be made. And unfortunately, we don't control it all. 
After the break, we continue our conversation with Tamika Ellington and Joseph Underwood. They are the Kent State University professors who co-created Textures, a new exhibition and book on the history and art of black hair. You can see some of the photos of the art they mentioned at our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the hour, we'll hear about a high fashion hair show making its debut at this year's International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven. But now we're talking with Kent State University professors, Tamika Ellington and Joseph L. Underwood. They're the co-creators of a new exhibition and book called Textures, The History and Art of Black Hair. Their show examines the legacy of black hair in our culture. And I asked Dr. Ellington about whether she sees an improvement in how we recognize and respect black hair in America. There's still a lot of debate whether or not this uh, quote unquote black hair movement or natural hair movement is a trend or not, and whether or not people are going to end up going back to, you know, straightening their hair. Um, as we know from history, in the late 1960s, early 70s, black people, a lot of black people were wearing their hair natural. But then when we get to the 80s, they go back to straightening their hair. And then when we get back to the 2000s, then now again, there's this, you know, this trend of wearing, you know, natural hair, but there's an ebb and flow, but then there's also this um, permanency of it all. Um, Because Black people have been standing up and, um, and protesting and have been standing up and, you know, fighting against legislation you know, um, and putting in place um, laws that prohibit discrimination, you know, those kinds of things will help um, natural hair not become a trend. Um, It'll help it become something that's long lasting because people won't have to worry about losing their job or won't have to worry about getting kicked out of school, you know, because of their choice, you know, to wear natural hair. So, you know, I'm hoping that more states across the U.S. will adopt the Crown Act. Right now, we have about 10 states so far that have adopted the Crown Act. Um, I know in Ohio here, we've been um, working on legislation to try to get that adopted. But um, as we continue to fight, um, if across the U.S., if all states, you know, begin to adopt laws such as the Crown Act, I can see black hair, black natural hair being something that is long lasting. If we, um, you know, go back and, you know, others fight against these laws and say, okay, it's okay to discriminate against someone because they have dreadlocks, or it's okay to say that, you know, a black woman who wears an afro to work, she's not professional. You know, if, as long as those things continue to be okay, then it's going to be a trend because people are, are not going to want to lose out on, you know, being employed. They're not going to want to lose out on being able to go to the school that they want to go to, or they won't even, you know, want to lose out on being able to select the mate that they want, because that comes up that, Hey, that's a whole nother story right there. Right. You know, black women having, you know, the right to be able to choose the mate that they want, you know, but again, I see it as both being permanent as well as something that is ebbing and flowing. 
Joseph, let's carry through on that because often when people think about the Crown Act or the legislation that is needed, or even the very idea of having a conversation about this, they think about how Black communities navigate this in predominantly white spaces. But what Tamika has just alluded to is that this is also about the internal conversations and internal challenges that women face in being able to define themselves for themselves. How does the the exhibition or the book address those intra-group challenges around hair and agency? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm gonna even lean on Tamika's term of texturism, which is related to Alice Walker's term colorism, where there's a preferential treatment of those who are lighter skin, just as in texturism, there's a preferential treatment of those whose hair tends towards straighter. Um, so in our, it's actually in our hair politics section, there's all these different facets for in, in which we can think of black hair as political. And one of them is within the, the black community and the very popular concept of having good hair. So we have artists like Nakia Brown, who is an incredible photographer. Mm -hmm. And in her good, the refutation of good hair mm -hmm. series, she shows black women with different textures on their head who are ingesting physically, putting hair extensions, pieces of straight hair into their mouth. And it's this very kind of grotesque, you can tell they're choking on it. And whether it's an expectation from an employer or if you want a certain kind of boyfriend, right? It's that inside the community tension. We've got people like Karo Akpokiere, who's this incredible artist from Nigeria. And he has recreated the West African barber board where you can point to the different hairstyles you want, except he's done all the different cuts based on all the different preachers and sects of Christianity in Nigeria. So which, which one are you aligning with based on which hairstyle you have? So there's, there are, I mean, and this is old, hair has always signaled who we are, what group we belong to and what we aspire to. Whether it's right, like a, a certain sect of society, a certain secret society, um, it can indicate your kind of prepubescence or adulthood. Mm -hmm. The hair's been an, an, a way to, to easily mark that for yourself and then to communicate that to others. So the dynamics of, of intra-group, um, gatekeeping, um, and, and then to, to the external. I mean, we, we kind of approach it from all these angles because yes, here you would be um, a minority in a predominantly white space, but we have a lot of pieces from Africa, both pre pre-colonial and, and contemporary. And there, it's not a minority experience, right? You're, you're, the, you're in the majority and you're still having some of these tensions and questions around your hair and externally applied beauty standards. It's, it's really complex. And I really hope people don't think that they're gonna come to the exhibition and walk away with all the answers and solutions and really neat kind of clean stories. I mean, it's 250 different perspectives from 250 different moments in time. And, and all of them have their, their moment of, of aesthetic beauty, but then also the questions that are still lingering, some from ancient history and some from, from very recent. One of the most compelling aspects of the exhibition and the book that I've been able to, to read the different pieces of how this comes together 
is that emphasis on the diasporic global nature of these debates. And to be able to weave in, nice play on words there, weave in that context and that nuance and show that these are things that we take for granted yet are so ingrained into our collective experiences that as you said, I don't think anyone can walk away feeling like, okay, now I get it. But hopefully we'll walk away saying, I wanna learn more or I want to address this more. Let's talk about the exhibition and and the physical sense of this. This is being hosted at the Kent State University Museum on the campus of a predominantly white institution. And this is an exhibition and a journey and a story about black hair. What does it mean to showcase this work in that space? And how does that shape your vision for the audience for this? You know, for me, it's, It's been about, you know, breaking down the idea of what society thinks beauty is. You know, at at the Kent State University Museum, because it is on a predominantly white campus, most of the patrons that go to the museum are also white people. um, And uh, in fact, older white people. Um, And so it was really important for me to allow them to get up close to history, to be able to get up close to what Black people really are, instead of you know having these preconceived notions about who they might think we are. Um, for me, it was a lot about wanting to humanize Black people so that they can get you know get a, a better sense that our 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 way of beauty really does count and it really does matter. And it is a real thing. You know, we're not, um, we're not ashamed about being black. Um, We're happy, we are joyful, you know, about being black. And um, it's just, for me, it was important because I, I honestly think that the only way we'll be able to truly dismantle discrimination is if you, get people to have a better understanding of others, you know, that are not like them. And so for me, the exhibition was a way to help people get a better understanding of Black people and Black beauty. There is something so incredibly compelling about two people coming together to create this experience that empowers and recognizes and highlights the diversity of artists and artistry that you have assembled for this. And I think especially in this moment where the country feels very divided, where people start fighting each other as opposed to dismantling a structure that limits those voices, this is the kind of exhibition and the story that can break down those kinds of barriers and at least engage people in the conversation to say, I didn't know that, now let me consider it. And that is why I think it is so important to think about how do we keep those conversations going? And so in the time that we have left, I want to ask each of you, and and we'll start with you, Tamika, in doing your research and creating this show, what was something that you learned that shocked or surprised you? You know, 
Um, for me, I've been doing this research about black hair for a long time now. Uh, so one of the things I think that shocked or surprised me was just how little people know, um, you know, how little they know, um, even black people, how little black people know. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm actually in the process of working on another book. Um, and this particular book um, is an anthology, a collection of um, um, articles or chapters um, by myself and some other scholars that I've been working with. Um, the, the working title of the book is um, Navigating the Black Hair Phenomenon in a White World. And the editors that I've been working with, um, it was, it was, I was very much so taken aback by a lot of responses that I got from those editors. Um, one of the things that was told to me was I needed to give more references for cultural aspects that they didn't understand and that they felt as though I was over-exaggerating the plight of black hair in regards to what you know women actually experience. They felt that it was like, actually one of them actually said, well, it can't possibly be this bad. And you know that really surprised me that people still don't believe us, that people are still questioning our experience, our cultural experience. Um, yeah, that's the thing that's been the most surprising to me is that people just, they still don't trust us. They still don't think that what we're saying is valid and true. And that affirms why that book is needed incredibly. Joseph, what about you? What shocked you or surprised you in this journey? I think one of the things that I found most surprising as we had the conversations with artists was that they were really excited to see their work in not just the traditional white cube gallery space. Because as we pitched it, it was kind of unusual. This exhibition, the way that it blends so-called fine art with material culture, artifacts. You know, I think we even, at, at, at one, one of our early pitches, someone said, this sounds almost anthropological. It sounds problematic. And yet every artist we talked to said, I can't wait to see my painting, my collage, my whatever, hanging on a wall next to beauty magazines from the 60s, the FBI's most wanted poster for Angela Davis, next to Egyptian sculptures of, you know, uh, wig ornaments. And just like, I want my work thinking about that connection and maybe it has to do with the intergenerational quality the fact that we're moving into I mean I, I mean I would hope to think we're moving away from contemporary art as just a um, like a market commodity and you're getting the next hot black artist and snapping up their work and instead being able to really contextualize it and put it within a history and think about it in relationship to objects trans historically transnationally, across geography, and, and across media, right? It's not a painting exhibition. It's not an exhibition of artists who use hair to make art. 
it's, I, I mean, we can come up with all these puns, right? It's, it's weaving it all together. There's so many strands and, <laughs> um, and, but it's, Tamika and I just can't wait to see it up on the wall. I mean, to, to finally have these things which are all witnesses of different times and periods of history in the same room, having conversations, having people come to the exhibitions, just the icing on top. It's, it's being able to take this dialogue between, um, you know, a, a corn grinder used by enslaved peoples as the one way they could clean and take care of their hair hanging next to Sonia Clark's flag, black hair flag, which is an kind of overlay of the stars and stripes in braids on top of a painted Confederate flag. So the, the conversations are going to be so dynamic and, and it's gonna reward close looking and close listening and, mm -hmm. and time. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm excited for an exhibition that's gonna strike people on different days you know, what's going to happen as we hit an election season or the next, you know, Crown Act um, passing or getting rejected in Ohio, or it's going to resonate with the world around it as it exists in this space for uh, its 10-month run. Joseph L. Underwood and Tamika Ellington are co-creators of the upcoming exhibition, Textures, The History and Art of Black Hair. And they're also professors at Kent State University. You can see some photos from the exhibit at ctpublic.org disrupted. Coming up, the new programming director for the International Festival of Arts and Ideas is incorporating his experience as a hairstylist into this year's events, and he'll give us a preview. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we're taking a look at the global legacies of black hair. And this year, there's a unique celebration happening right here in Connecticut. Malachi Eason II is the new programming director for the International Festival of Arts and Ideas. He's bringing the beauty and artistry of a high fashion hair show to Connecticut. Malachi, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. So we're excited. You're the new programming director at the festival. It's entering its 26th year. It is returning after the adjustments because of the pandemic last year. And a lot of people are eager to hear what the festival will do this year. Talk to us about this year's theme and how you plan on addressing it as programming director. Yes. Uh, so yeah, you know, 2020 was a crazy year, right? We all thought Oh, 2020 is going to be the bomb. We're going to be out here in the streets. Um, but in reality, it didn't turn out like that. You know, COVID came and it literally changed the trajectory of our future forever. Right. And I know that I was affected by COVID and a lot of my friends were affected by COVID and the arts was definitely affected by the pandemic. Right. So for me coming into this position and we're thinking about like how we're going to do this festival is it going to be a hybrid of in-person, out-person? You know, how are we, how are we going to do this? And um, I was just thinking about like, yo, this is this is our chance to actually address what went on. Like some people like to sweep it under the rug and act like everything's okay, but I just can't, my morals won't allow me to do that. And so I was thinking, like, let's just imagine what the world looks like after 2020, right? We're here in 2021. 
Um, things are slowly but surely getting better. Finally, right? People are starting to get vaccinated. But there are some people that are still damaged from last year. People had to live off of state funds. People had to, a lot of people lost their jobs, wondering how they're going to feed their kids. And for the artists, they didn't have no way of making money because their thing is concerts, traveling, touring. And so I just wanted to imagine what art looked like after all that. You know, we wanted to find a way of imagining a way out and figuring out how we can build upon the art community. So yeah, we're imagining, you know, different sectors of art, how every part of it looks afterwards. So that's how I came up with it. And we wanted to also present new forms of arts. So we are presenting a hair show this year, which is imagining that art is not just dance and singing and instruments. It's more than just that. There, there are things that we do every day, like watching a TV is an art. You know what I'm saying? Like that, the box, that's art. So just trying to figure out ways of being creative in that nature. So let's talk about that. The theme is Imagine 2021 Together. And as you said, imagining new forms of art or new ways of engaging art. And one of the headlining events is a high fashion hair show. Malachi, I grew up in the South. So I grew up watching Bronner Brother hair battles and being amazed by the art and the technique. Talk to our listeners about this high fashion hair show for the festival this year and how you see it as art? Well, you know, there's no denying that hair is art. I am a licensed hairstylist. Uh, prior to my life of performing and working in arts administration, I did hair, well, I did hair, honestly, up until I moved to, to um, New Haven. Um, but I used to own a salon. I've been doing hair since I was 14 years old. I've been to Warner Brothers hair shows plenty of times. So just like you've been raised in the South and you've been there, I've been there. And that has definitely opened up my eyes to, you know, to that world, right? So when you go to a hair show, people think, oh, it's just going to be people in nice clothes walking with nice hair and blah, 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 blah. And that's not reality. Reality is you go in there, you get in a full service show, straight up show. So you can have dancing, you can have singing, you have a lot of theatrical things happening. Um, people are extremely creative, hanging from things, going into water. Uh, and then the hair may spin in a circle. Some things might be five feet long. That is all art. And it's visual art, right? And it's textual. So for me, I was like, yeah, we have to start think, paying attention to these kind of things. Like, this is a legit art. Um, so I'm hoping that New Haven is able to look at this and be in a place where they're open to receive that art. Because, yeah, it's going to be a lot, right? It's and You and me both know. We've been to hair shows. You know, it, it could be, be a lot of energy. Um, but I think that that's what the city needs now. And I think that the city just needs something to sit back and say, I'm smiling. I'm, I, I had a few laughs. And I was, I was amazed. Did that just come off that person's head? All that. And even, like, the element of doing hair on stage for six minutes and doing a, a different type of style on stage. So it's going to be... Very nice. Very, very nice. I'm smiling listening to you talk about it because I'm remembering being blown away by seeing an artist cut hair underwater and the style yes. come out. And it, it's a total experience. But Malachi, this is different, not just for Connecticut, but for the festival. Talk to us about the reaction when you pitched this hair show as this headlining event. What was the reaction of the team? 
You know what? Let me just keep it real with you. I was like, okay, well, Malachi, I um, I go by the name Dr. Creative. So a lot of my friends really do call me Dr. Creative and they know that they have issues or they, they're planning a, planning a trip or a concert or an event. They need something spicy. They'll call me up and I'll be like, oh, do this, you know. But I'm in, I was in a, I'm in a role where I'm able to be creative, right? I'm able to really live out my dream. And then I have a great support system. And it was just awkward. But I was extremely scared to, to present it. I was like, they ain't going to know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, so I presented it to my boss. And her reaction was not what I expected. She was extremely like, what? Yes, let's do it. See what your team says. I was like, okay. So then I went to the team <laughs> and they were like, well, this is what we need. This is how this can work. And I was just like, wow, it feels so different to have that amount of support, you know, coming from um, working in other places, a PAC where things are really structured, structured to the point where we just do the same thing every year with different artists, right? There's not a lot of room or budget for creativity. So for years, I've worked in a space where I could be creative about presenting a different artist, but not creative with the type of programming I can create. So the my boss was with it, my team was with it, the board was with it, it was like, let's do it. So I was expecting a negative, but received a positive. So it is, that makes it even better. And we have this dope platform artist called Sean John. He's from Boston, Massachusetts. He's done everything. And a platform artist is someone who does hair on stage, has the dramatics, has the colors, has the cuts, electronics and kills. So he's headlining the show as well. So Dr. Creative, let's talk about, there's the headlining portion, right? Where people will get this full show and this complete experience, something unlike anything they've ever seen. But you are also including a panel discussion to talk about the culture and the history and how art is seen through hair and how it's also been this form of expression. Why do you think it's important to pair that runway show with this panel discussion? Because it's not fair to just do a show and not give some history behind it. That is just rude, right? To me, like, that's nice. But if my goal is to make everybody educated and bring a community together and, and put people in on those conversations, because um, I, I believe, even like when I used to present other things, like I wanted there to be some type of pre-show conversation or post-show conversation. So you can really know what this, is about, this show is about. And in this, in this instance, I'm looking at it as like a post-show conversation or a pre-show conversation, right? And so it's, it's the opportunity for people to see the historical meanings behind some hairstyles, whether it's indigenous people in braids and long hair, not cutting the hair, whether it's African-American people in locks and what a lock is and what a dreadlock is and the difference between that how how to and how not to touch certain things when they're on people's heads all these conversations <laughs> hello will come will come together and 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 that conversation and we have a great panelist like the panelist um there's a lady on there and her name is Felicia Webster um she goes by uh with love Felicia and she's one of the most earthy women that I've ever met in my entire life and but she is so knowledgeable about hair and she 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 has uh very long locks and she she does history right so she goes back she talks about the roots of different styles and not just african-american things she talks about european hairstyles and then going goes through it all 
Um, then we have some community people in there as well. We have Corey and Tammy Parker, um, who have been stylists in uh, Connecticut for a very long time. And they're the one of the, some of the most educated hairstylists that I've met since I've been here. And I met them about 14 years ago uh, here in Connecticut. So it's going to be lit. It's going to be lit. Listening to you, it becomes apparent that hair is never just hair, but hair is also this expression of culture, of agency, of power, of self-definition. And we're here in Connecticut where lawmakers have just passed the Crown Act to ban hair discrimination in the workplace. And a lot of people said, look, it's just hair. Why do we need that? But the things that you are incorporating into this experience directly speak to why we need to focus on hair. How did the passage of this act or the discussion around Uh, the act inform the show? When it passed, I just, all I can do is smile because I have a personal connection with being in a workplace and being told that I need to cut my hair, right? And I remember when I first moved to Omaha, Nebraska, and I had, this is my second set of locks that I have now. And I had long locks to the top of my behind. And somebody pulled me to the side um, and said, you know, the interview was really, really good. They're just really not comfortable, you know, with your hair. I promise you, if you was to let go of your hair, um, you would get this job, but it was a really, really good job. And, and I was just like, I had to go home and I talked to my mom. I was like, mom, what should I do? She was like, well, your hair's going to grow back anyway. You know, she, you know, she just wants you to have a job. But I'm just like, but I grew this hair for years. You get what I'm saying? But I kind of was in a rock, rock in a hard place where I needed, I needed to work. So I ended up cutting my hair and I got the job and I just felt, I felt worthless. I didn't feel like myself. I didn't feel authentic. I didn't feel like it was who, who I was called to be. And I was putting on a front to be someone who I was not, you know? And I think that that kind of, it, in a way it was positive because it, it drove me to change the narrative. It drove me to go back to school, to get more degrees and do all this, these wonderful things that on paper looks good to a certain person's eyes. Right. But as I got older, I'm like, I should I don't have to do all that. Be yourself, be who you are. People are going to take you for who you are. And so when the Crown Act went, I'm like, thank you. So now you can't discriminate or have anybody. And if you was to come to me on the side and say something like that, if yeah, if you was if you was to come to me and say something like that on the side, you know, I can bring it up now and it and it would be valid. So it was definitely worth the conversation. It was definitely worth um bringing it up because that's gonna be a part of the conversation as well, right? That's gonna be a part of that that conversation. So it's definitely connected because now they'll not only get a visual of it, but they'll get the history behind it and why the Crown Act is so important. Art has this power to bring people together, to explore their common humanity and their common experiences, but to also confront the experiences that may not be their own, but deserve to be told. And yeah. For so much of the programming for the festival this year, that is what you are doing in in art and all of its manifestations, telling those stories and disrupting the malaise that many people feel after this last year. What are some of the other headlining events or key programming events that you want listeners to be aware of for this year's festival? Um, So we have our opening ceremony, which has community artists, six community artists, and we're, we are re- revealing our documentary called Imagine, 
which focus on the artist struggle throughout 2020 and also ends with a song that they were all recorded together and it'll be a live performance. Um, then we have Juneteenth weekend, which is going to be off the chain. Uh, on that Saturday, we have um, the hair show, which is our major baby. And uh, we have some live performances in the evening by some Grammy award winning artists. Okay. Um, <laughs> on, uh, on Sunday, we have Ronald K. Brown, who is a legendary um, choreographer, and the brother is off the chain. And as the week goes on, there's so many other cultural events that happens. And then we close our entire festival out with a drag show. And you know, it's pride, hello, it's, a, it's pride week, <laughs> it's pride. Uh, and so it's dope to com uh, collaborate with um, New Haven um, Pride Center. Um, it's gonna be off the chain. And there's an artist called LaDiva Monet from Atlanta, Atlanta, oh yes, you know her. Uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, she's a Fantasia impersonator and she is the bomb and we got her. And she's gonna be killing. That was Malachi Eason II, Programming Director for the International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven. To learn more about all of the events for this year's festival, running May 14th to June 27th, check out artidea.org. And a note, the International Festival of Arts and Ideas is an underwriter of Connecticut Public Radio. Disrupted is produced by Anna Elizabeth, James Scoble-Wolf, and Katie Tularski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.